Blog Talk Radio. Fans, you're here as always this wonderful Wednesday night with a brand new episode of Slasher Studios Horror Podcast. I'm here as always, my co host Andrew. Andrew, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good, you know, living the dream, the usual. How about yourself? <laughs> well, not too bad at all. So, um, we, we have a really exciting episode tonight. Uh, we're going to be having a special guest call in in a few minutes. Uh, we worked with him on Disarming Christmas. He's another uh, filmmaker friend of ours. So uh, we're going to be talking to him a lot about Disarming Christmas and some of his other projects. So that should be a lot of fun. Um, so last week, um, you said that you were going to go see Sinister 2. Uh, you saw it. Do you have a little mini review for the listeners? I do. You know, it, it kind of boggles my mind at the fact that it's being ripped apart at the seems by all of these people because I mean yeah it, it it was nothing so it wasn't great I didn't love it but I didn't hate it either I didn't understand why it had like a four percent when the gallows in that crap fest known as the pyramid um got way higher reviews on Rotten Tomatoes I mean yeah the kid actors were kind of and I did feel like I was worried going into this movie from the trailers, and some of my fears were confirmed that some of the kill tapes were a little too elaborate and over the top, which kind of made them a little hokey. I mean, the original worked because they were all very realistic and creepy. This is some very obvious CGI nonsense going on. But, I mean, I still kind of enjoyed it. I mean, I would give it like a five, maybe a six out of ten. Oh, interesting, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of curious about it. Um, as a whole, though, like the one thing that I kind of noticed in the trailer and stuff um, that I thought was kind of interesting is the fact that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's, you know, the cast or the look or whatever whatever it is with the movie, but like this movie, like it kind of looked cheaper to me than the first one, and for whatever reason... Maybe it was, I don't really even know. Maybe it was just making a sequel, but, I mean, this movie cost three times what the original original cost to make. Oh, really? I mean, I didn't think it looked cheaper. I thought it looked actually pretty good. I mean, the locations they picked were nice. Um, I did like having Shannon Sossaman. I do like her. Um, And I I did like the whole idea of bringing Deputy So-and-So back as the focus because he was very good in part one and he's still good in part two. I mean, he's not this big, strong hero guy that you usually get news. I mean, he's not Ash from the evil dead, but it's more realistic than that. And I really kind of enjoyed him. Um, I did have some issues. I mean, there's a, like a custody battle subplot that's 
a little too hokey. I mean, um, the 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 father character is just very very predictable. <laughs> um, I kind of wish they would have. He's very one note, so I would have liked a little variant on that. But I mean, it didn't destroy. Maybe I just went in with such low expectations, but man. You say you kind of like this movie on the internet, and you're just like, well, I haven't seen worse. It's the worst movie I've ever seen. I sat through Annabelle, and it's still worse than that. I'm like, sounds like a personal problem, dude. Not my problem. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> well, and I mean, we just, we've talked about this many times on our show before, but I mean, we just kind of live in an era where literally every single movie is either the worst movie or the best movie ever made. Like, there's nothing in between. And even those ones that people are like, this is the best movie I've ever seen, like, you'll get, like, maybe, like, a week of that and then, like, the title turn and then two months from that, two months after that, people will be like, that movie was so overrated. I Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say when you started going in this direction, being like, yeah, well, you know, if a if a scary movie starts getting rave reviews or anything like that, all of a sudden you've got these too cool for school horror fans that are like, oh, it's overrated. I only watch movies like a Serbian film and stuff like that. And I'm just like, you know, you can see an American-made horror movie in the theaters and not be a sellout. Not all of them are terrible, but you have to dig through the crap to get to the good much like you did in the 80s with all the VHS era. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the things, too, were, like, I mean, even, like, a movie like It Follows, where, you know, if you if you don't like it, I completely respect that. I mean, granted, you have to have, like, some reasons behind it as opposed to it just sucked. But, I mean, there's movies like that that are coming out. I mean, I guess even, like, Unfriended, where... Actually, um, studios are kind of taking a chance. I mean, even The Gallows, which is not good, probably, I haven't seen it by any means, at least we're getting original horror films. I mean, they might not be good, but the next one might be. So, I mean, maybe we're headed kind of in a step in the right direction. Well, and I mean, the thing of it is, is it seems like, I mean, a majority of the horror movies that are coming to the theater are Bloomhouse. And say what you want about them, but... They generally do, unlike, you know, Platinum Dunes and, oh, what's his name, Brian Fuller? Is it Brian Fuller? Um, Brad, Brad Fuller. Who I was yeah, like, Brad Fuller. Well, we listen to the fans. We're listening to the fans, and we're making sure we're listening to the fans. And then you see their movies, and they, they don't listen at all, whereas Bloomhouse does listen to the fans and tries to fix it. And, I mean, the best example would be uh, The Purge and The Purge Anarchy. I mean, they heard everybody complaining about how The Purge was just a home invasion movie and it was, you know, I mean, it was nothing really that special, but it had such a great setup. So they were like, well, if you guys wanted to see what downtown L.A. looked like in The Purge, we're going to show you that in the sequel. And I think with Sinister 2, there was just so many people talking about how great the kill tapes were that they thought they had to go above and beyond for the sequel. And I do feel that kind of hurt them because they tried to outdo, but, um, you know, they try. I, 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 I don't know if I'm ready to accept the gem and the holograms movie is from them, but other than that, you know, I think they're pretty solid. If they make a, 
a gallows part two. I think they'll definitely uh, kind of hopefully fix what was wrong with the first one, which was awful characters, but very kind of interesting story and location. Yeah, and I think that you kind of hit on a good thing with Bloomhouse too. I mean, not only do they kind of listen to their fans, but they really do kind of give the fans what they want, maybe not with the first one, like with Purge, but with the sequel. But also, um, their their advertising campaigns are always so good. Like, if you're to look at a movie, granted, a lot of people didn't like it. I liked it a lot. But, um, like, I would go on record as saying, I think that Unfriended has one of the best advertising campaigns of the last few years. Like, the way that they use social media and just... I mean, it was pretty much a lot of the stuff they had was free because they just were like, okay, well, we'll set up a Facebook account for Laura Barnes and we'll do all this stuff. And it was kind of, it's kind of like a renaissance of like William Castle filmmaking where it's like, oh, there's going to be a gimmick behind this, but it's going to be a really good gimmick and it's going to be one that's interactive. And and I like that kind of um, fun experience when it comes to horror. Well, I mean, look at what they did with the gallows with that Charlie Charlie demon challenge that everybody started doing. I mean, I had no idea that was in ties to the gallows until, like, after the point. I just thought it was kind of cool at first. So, yeah, I mean, they're they're very good at knowing their, their target audience. Um, I, I And like you, I did like Unfriended. I will not buy Unfriended until it gets really cheap because with no special features, especially with all the deleted scenes I've heard it has, it kind of, you know chaps my hide but I still really enjoyed the movie for what it was <laughs> well I mean if any horror movie of the last few years demanded a making of it's unfriended I mean the fact that they pretty much rented out a house for the month I mean the whole movie was done in this house um, each character was in a different room it was all done with GoPro cameras like there's so much about that movie that as a filmmaker and also as a horror fan it's just very fascinating and it's a shame that we didn't get any of that well, yeah, and, like, the lead actress said, a lot of it was, they. I mean, they went through the whole movie in, like, one take each time. Like, they would just go from start to finish, and they just kind of edited it all together. Plus, from what I've read, um, pretty much everybody has a different death scene, and the ending is completely different. But, I mean, we'll never know, because it doesn't look like we'll ever see it. Yeah, I mean, the only the only reason I can think of that we got a bare bones is if for whatever reason they're planning on doing a sequel, and it's very possible because that movie cost literally nothing to make, and it was a it was a box office hit. So I have a feeling that they're probably gonna throw out a sequel, and then hey, what do you know? Um, then we're gonna get a um, unfriended kind of uh, you know uh, a slew of special features. So. Um, it looks like we have our special guest on the line, um, so we're going to invite him on right now. So, um, hey, Dylan, you with us? Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, how's it going? Hi, Pretty Dylan. Good. How are you guys doing How's tonight? You doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing oh, good. Oh, well, I'm doing good. Kevin? <laughs> I'm doing good too. Uh, so yeah, Dylan, uh, how you been? Pretty good. Pretty excited about the movie coming out. That's good news. I hear we yeah, already I'm have actually... some. Uh, yeah, I hear we have some potential uh, 
parties interested in it already. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's been really crazy lately. So um, why don't you just kind of do like a little introduction about yourself for the listeners um, who may not know you. So, uh, yeah, just tell us about who you are, um, what you like to do, and kind of your role in the film. Sure. Well, my name is Dylan Curzon. Uh, I went to film school at MCAD. That's the Minneapolis College of Art and Design here in Minnesota. Um, But I never really, you know, at film school, they kind of want you to do the more artistic films. But I was always more into what I felt was pleasing the audience, I guess. So, you know, I was always trying to, like, make, I guess, what you'd call commercial movies at art school. So... I was always more into the horror side of things. And I guess I got first involved with Slasher Studios listening to the podcast, actually. When I worked at UPS, I, you know, I would just listen to it to pass the time. And, you know, I, I think I, I emailed you guys a few times, and that's kind of how I first got involved with the project. So, yeah, I just started out as a fan of you guys and then, you know, listened to the podcast, and then it just kind of went from there. Oh, that's awesome. That's kind of how it happened with me, too. I mean, I was a, a fan of the website, and through that, I mean, Kevin friended me on Facebook, and I started talking to him through that, and now I'm a I'm a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Moving up in the world. <laughs> so, um, Dylan, uh, so going through phone school, um, did you know throughout film school, I mean, has making movies always been what you wanted to do? Um, and to take that even further, you know, is with making movies, was there one thing in particular that you knew you wanted to do that you wanted to jump right into? Or was it just kind of a, you know, learn as you go thing? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, when I was like nine or 10 years old, I remember my parents got me, a camcorder, you know, I'm sure a lot of film students have a similar story, but, you know, I got a camcorder at that age and, you know, me and my neighborhood friends would just like get together and make these stupid movies. But, you know, it was, it was really fun, you know, it was just, and like, I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, you, you're kind of like learning the craft, even like when you're just making those like stupid movies with your friends, you know. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I did the same thing. I, I remember um, as a kid, uh, we used to go to the drive-in, and they would they would play the the audio over the the radio. So I I put in my little like my little tape, and then like I'd record all the audio, and then like we'd get out our camcorder and then just kind of reenact it based on what we could remember or what we got recorded on it. So yeah, I'm I'm right there with you on that. <laughs> yeah. No. Nice. Yeah, I think we did pretty much the exact same thing, I feel like. Um, But, yeah, as far as, like, you know, at the same time as well, like, around that age was when I was kind of getting into horror, you know. I think, like, my earliest memories of horror is, like, seeing glimpses of movies like Halloween or, like, Scream on TV. And, you know, my mom wouldn't want me to watch these movies, but... My dad, you know, if we went to the video store, he would let me get whatever I want, essentially. So, I mean, I I could go behind my mom's back or, you know, if I was at, like, a friend's house, 
and you know they were watching Scream. I was just so into it. I was like, I, I don't know what these movies are, but I need to see more of them. No, oh, I'm awesome. the same way. I remember, um, I remember being uh, very young, and we were at Disney World, and um, in the hotel room they were showing like it was an MTV show that would show previews of coming attractions. And I remember seeing the diving board scene from Nightmare on Elm Street 5 as one of the clips for an upcoming movie. And I was just glued to that screen. And my mother was just like, don't watch, don't watch. And I was like, okay, <laughs> as I like half cover my eyes. But, right. And then, of course, it ends. And I'm like, did, did she just like go through glass? What happened? What happened? And they're like, you weren't supposed to watch. So, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think any kind of like, child horror fan is in the same boat. I mean, we, we kind of snuck and watched as much as we could. Yeah, for sure. And it was like in, in a span of like a few weeks, I had seen like Halloween scream, you know, like I had started diving into Friday the 13th. I had loved Jaws, you know, like Psycho, of course, and The Shining, like all these movies in like a time span. And I was hooked like, and I knew, like, okay, I want to make movies, but I want to make horror movies specifically. No, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think that a horror is one of those things where, you know, if it doesn't grab you right away when you're a kid, it's probably never going to. Like, I, I've talked to other, like, like friends, and they'll be like, I never watched horror movies as a kid. Like, I never cared. And if you don't kind of get that, that seed in you right away, I, I don't know if you ever will. Well, yeah, and that's for sure. the kind of thing where it's it it kind of sucks because there's all these like like hardcore horror fans that want to make movies, but it seems like a lot of the movies being made um, by the big studios are people being like, well, I mean, I'm just doing it to pad my resume. I'm not really that big of a fan of horror, but um, I just I just know if I do this, doors will open. And I'm just kind of like, well, that's not the attitude you should have. Like, you should be like, yeah, I'm super pumped to make this. I'm, we're going to make the best movie we can. Not, uh, well, you know, like Ronnie Yu and Freddy vs. Jason. <laughs> I'd rather watch that, though, than uh, Freddy's Dead or whatever. God, that was a terrible <sighs> movie. <laughs> no, terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> Rachel Tallier, uh-uh. <laughs> So, Dylan, uh, you were the gaffer on Dismembering Christmas. Um, part of the reason this movie looks as good as what it does is a large chunk of your Thank talent. You. So, Thank you. Yeah, um, it looks incredible. So tell us how you decided to kind of come up with the, the Christmas kind of look for this movie and how you made it look so good. Yeah, sure. I'll, yeah, I'll try a little bit. Um I mean, I, I guess going back to Halloween again, I always loved, and Dean Cundy was the the DP on Halloween and, like, The Fog and some, you know, John Carpenter's movies. And he also, like, went on to Jurassic Park. You know, he's, like, one of the top cinematographers. But there's just something I always loved about the lighting in Halloween particularly that's kind of, like, it, he just makes the scenes look, have a, a textural look to them. You know, they're not just, like, flat and cheap-looking even, you know, working with, like, a, you know, independent filmmaking, you, you always have a low budget. So, I mean, I feel like using his style was a good idea because he makes the most out of, you know, what he can do, and he still gets a really cool kind of 
textural look, you know, with the background and everything. Well, and I mean, having you, I, you, people need to realize that you were the first one on set and I was the last one off of set. Like you worked your tail off on that movie. And like Kevin said, I mean, it looks so good. Like when I was watching it, I was like, God, it looks like we had like three times the budget. And a lot of it is because of the lighting that we had for it. So, I mean, I just have to like tip my hat to you, sir, because you worked so hard and it just, it, it paid off in spades. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I mean, of course, you know, working as the gaffer, you're working with the the whole camera department as well. So, I mean, you know, working with Anthony and Jordan was awesome too. Like Anthony was just always ready to go, like willing to do any kind of shot. And I mean, yeah, we didn't have, a huge budget, but I feel like we really squeezed everything out of everything we had and just really put our all into it. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, so, yeah, I guess another question that I have for you kind of going off of that is um, we kind of talked about how, um, you know, filmmaking today with the whole um, digital movement is both a blessing and a curse. I mean, obviously, we're making movies today that – you know, we wouldn't have been able to make had there only been film because it would have just cost too much. But you mentioned, too, about how it kind of looks, especially in um, a lot of the ultra-low-budget movies, it kind of looks flat. There's no detail. It kind of looks washed out. Um, What did you do or what kind of tips would you give to others to kind of give your digital movie more of a depth? Sure. Yeah, I'll try to go into it without boring listeners too much. Um, But I feel like the basics I learned, you know, just at film school and, you know, working on other sets under other better cinematographers is that, uh, you know, simpler can be better with lighting. You don't want to have a ton of light sources or you're just going to get a washed out, overexposed or too many conflicting shadows, that kind of thing. And it's all about flagging off your separate light sources. So, you know, you have your key light on your actor, but you don't want your key light to spill into the background. Otherwise, you're just going to all look the same. You know, that's how you get that flat look. So you want to try to flag off your key light from your background lights, you know, have your kicker lights in the background doing their thing. And that will give you that better sort of depth to the shot where it looks like more expansive and just more more visually interesting than that flat look you were talking about. Awesome. Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, Andrew, do you have a question that you'd like to ask? Well, I mean, as some of the listeners may know or may not know, I mean, you also did the score for Dismembering Christmas. Um, How did that come about? Like, what were your influences for the score? Also, I mean, I know we only gave you, like, a week and a half to do it, but (laughs) it turned out amazing. So (laughs) I'd love to hear the thought process for that. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, while we were shooting the movie, I had, we were, it was the evening and we were done shooting. We were all taking a break or something, and I, I showed Austin these demo tracks I had made just in my spare time. You know, just when I found out about the project, I was, I just had all these ideas like, oh, it'd be cool. We could do this for music or something like that. So I showed him the demo tracks and he was down with it. 
And then he asked me to do the score, and I was very excited. You know, it was kind of like I've always wanted to do a, a slasher movie score, and this was finally the time I could dive right into it. Um, and at the time, I was listening uh, to a lot. I have to, of course, reference uh, Paul Zaza, the great slasher composer, of course. He does, like, uh, mm-hmm. Curtains and Prom Night. I was definitely listening to a lot of Curtains when I was doing the score for this. I think that's a brilliant score. Uh, there's just something about... Uh, I mean, Harry Manfredini is great. You know, you got to bring him up. He's definitely an influence on any sort of horror music today. But there's something about Paul Zaza as well. He He's really good at making a a really eerie sounding score that doesn't necessarily hit you over the head with being scary, but there's just something very unsettling about it. Yeah. It's, it's subtle. It's more subtle than, um, like, uh, some of the slasher scores. Didn't Paul Zaza also do my bloody Valentine? Oh, you're right. Yep. So because, yeah, yeah. Cause it, I mean, he's pretty much the king of Canadian horror. I believe that's how you started on the project because I remember you emailing me about possibly doing the score with the demo tracks. Oh, okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that started it, and then um, we all just started talking more and more, and then uh, we invited you to be the gaffer, or you volunteered. I'm not really... (laughs) <laughs> sure how that works but I feel I mean, like I just all... pestered my way onto set and then you guys just put up with me hey welcome to my world that's how I got on the show <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess a question that I have for you about the score um, I guess without getting um, too spoiler heavy um, was there a particular scene that you were really looking forward to um, doing a score for or do you have a particular scene in the movie that you found it hardest to do the score for? Oh, those are good questions. Uh, I was, even when we were filming this scene, yeah, I'll have to be careful here not to give anything away. Uh, there's a good, there's a chase scene. One of the uh, first chase scenes, I think it's brilliant in the movie. It's just awesome. And I remember when we were filming it, I was thinking this, you know, this could be so cool with music, you know, just the way they were filming it and everything and how it it turns out, how it turns out in the movie, it is just as awesome looking as I thought. So I I was really excited to do, you know, the classic chase cues that every horror movie has got to have. Um, But I suppose the most challenging part of the score was I wanted to also have a few different themes going um, just to kind of create some sort of motif. You know, I have a a main title uh, that has a music box in it that kind of becomes a main theme for one of the characters later in the movie. Um, And then there's, of course, the suspension or, you know, just like tension cues that are kind of scary sounding. They're not always the most interesting to write, but they're definitely fun to play. And I know the string players uh, that I recorded had a lot of fun with it because they're so used to playing constrained kind of classical Baroque music. And they had a lot of fun just being able to let loose and create these sounds that were unpleasant sounding on purpose. 
No, I think that's kind of a good point. I mean, when you're kind of composing a slasher movie, I mean, it's it's really one of the few uh, genres around where, like, you can pretty much throw anything out there, and it's, I mean, there's craziness kind of happening on the screen. Um, without giving too much away, um, I will say that there's a moment in the film that's like a build-up for for a, a death scene that involves like a run to the house and then a run outside. And when the door opens and this character runs outside and that score picks up, that that is my that is my favorite part of this entire score. So um, I I love that that moment. Like I've seen the movie several times now, and once it gets to that, like my heart just starts pumping and I, I love it so i think it's just incredible so good job <laughs> oh thank you kevin that's the greatest compliment i can get as the composer of the movie because i i mean at the end of the day it's all about i mean the music for a movie is just all about emotional mani- manipulation essentially not to sound like too creepy but you know it's there to enhance the scene <laughs> in whatever way that you need and, and at the same time you know another theme i had I, I felt the characters in the movie were more likable than you see in most slasher movies. Like, I really enjoyed watching them on screen, and I felt like they needed some sort of music theme that was, I guess, like a friendship theme to sound corny and everything. But there's a, a motif in the score that's like a that's not the scary-sounding music that's supposed to represent, you know, their friendship going away to this cabin on the weekend or whatever. Um, that you know that can serve as a contrast to the more harsh sounding atonal music that's you know you'll find in the typical slasher score. Well, and that's one of the oh, things I really enjoyed about Dismembering Christmas was um, the fact that we tried as hard as we could to make very very likable characters because it seems nowadays um, any kind of modern day slasher movie uh, they make they try to make the most unlikable characters. So you're like rooting for the killer to kill them off. But what made the slasher genre in the early eighties, at least so well is, I mean, at least in my shoes, I didn't want the characters to die. And like, I would feel bad when they died. And I was horrified uh, when they died because I was like, no, I like them. And I feel like we capture that with dismembering Christmas really well, because there's not one character in the entire movie where I'm just like, oh, they suck, get them off screen. Because, I mean, they're just, they're believable as friends and they're likable and they're just fun. Like, we could have made an hour and a half movie of just like a comedy with all of them and it would have been great because, I mean, we just kind of, we lucked out with all of our actors and then you add in the amazing score and like the cinematography from Jordan and Anthony and, I mean, I just, I tooting our own horn, but I feel we kind of knocked it out of the park. Yeah, and I'm, another big shout-out that i got to give, um, obviously, is to Austin. Um, all of the deaths in this are really fun. Um, I think that his direction on this is very kind of, it's not so much tongue-in-cheek, but it's very playful, and it's very kind of in tune with the Christmas spirit, and he also did um, the majority of the editing on this as well, and it just kind of moves at a really good pace. And I think with that great score um, that Dylan created, like, it just, like, the movie's done. You're like, oh, wait, well, like, like there, there's no kind of downtime. And I think that's kind of one of the one of the best things about it. 
Well, yeah, and that's the great thing that Austin did also is um, he made it lighthearted enough, but he didn't take it into farce, but he didn't take it so seriously that it was, like, dark and grungy, but it wasn't, like, parody-wise either. It just towed that line that was kind of, it worked very, very well, and it's very hard to capture, and I think um, he did it wonderfully, and I hope that the audiences feel that way too. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, go ahead. So, uh, Dylan, um, what are some of your biggest, like, inspirations as far as, like, um, classic soundtracks from films or composers besides Paul Zaza? Because, I mean, I'm sure you have a whole ton of them. Sure. Oh, yeah, I'll go a little more into that without going too far. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, you every every horror score has to give credit, of course, to Bernard Herrmann and his score to Psycho. I mean, he essentially invented uh, murder music. Um, I mean, this, when he scored the shower scene, I mean, every horror movie since that movie has used that convention. But I think it's because it works so effectively. You know, when you hear that music, it's just so evocative of, like, a slashing sound, or it's just very... It works so well with this kind of movie. The piercing violins? Yeah. The yeah. Sh- yeah, the shrieking strings. It, it just it works so well. It's it's so primal sounding. I think it it's just universally it works well in these kind of movies. Well, and it's very jarring and unsettling because it's not a sound you willingly want to hear. So it really kind of like brings the back of your, the hairs on the back of your neck up because it's just like, Oh no. (laughs) Right. And at the same time, I remember I I was talking to Austin and he he wanted the score to retain some of that Christmas feel, you know, but I, I wanted to, it was hard to, I had to straddle this line between being kind of Christmassy sounding and not too Christmassy sounding because I feel like if you start going too Christmas sounding, it kind of sound a little corny. You know, if you have too many sleigh bells or something. Um, but the score, uh, I also got to give a shout out to uh, Charles Bernstein and Richard Band. Uh, Richard Band's score to House on Sorority Row. I love the main title to that. And that was a big inspiration, you know, for a kind of, you know, almost lighthearted and unusual main theme for a movie and then of course yeah Carl and was, i i was gonna say your your main title um does that very good um walking the line of it sounds christmasy but not like beating you over the head with christmasy but sure, it's very yeah. um but i'm sorry yeah. uh, continue about charles bernstein oh yeah i was just gonna say of course charles bernstein who does uh or bernstein i'm not sure he does the great Nightmare on Elm Street score, of course. And I think April and he Fool's did the Day. April Fool's Day. Yeah. Yep. I love that one, yeah. Or another one that I kind of noticed as I was watching the movie, and I don't know if this was a conscious thing or, you know, what it is, but um, I definitely got a very um, tourist trap type feeling where it was kind of that, that playful eeriness. Um, so I don't know if that was kind of uh, a conscious thing on your part, but um, did that go into the score at all? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, tourist trap, probably not so much 
consciously, but again, that that is another great score, I think. So, I mean, I'm sure without realizing it, it's in there a little bit, you know. So what are you working on now? Right now, I just got done doing some music videos uh, with some Minneapolis rap artists. Um, I was shooting them. I was the camera guy. But uh, not much, actually, is going on lately. I'm hoping for another Slasher Studios project, maybe, in the near future. No, I think that'd be We're working on it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if people want to find out more information about you or more information about stuff that you've worked on, uh, where can people find you online? Sure. Yeah, so I've usually pretty bad at this whole social media thing, but I do, I like recently started a Facebook page, uh, uh, for the, my music production page, but otherwise you can find me at soundcloud.com slash Bista music, B E A S T A M U S I C. And then if you go to that page, you can find my Facebook link. And then there's an email link as well. If you want to contact me, we love doing horror scores. We work with any sort of budget, you know, low budget. We get it. Very cool. Uh, so kind of working on the next one, I mean, is would you be would you be down for kind of jumping into another uh, slasher movie? Is that something that you had fun with? Oh, for sure, definitely. I mean, it, I think like he wants I said, to direct the next one. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you know, even from ten years old, I knew like I got I have to make horror movies. It's just I don't know why I got to do it though, or I got to be involved somehow. Well, well that's awesome. The great yeah. thing about the internet. That's the great thing about the internet is that it brings um, the horror fanatics together and. You know, we all kind of have that common bond, so for sure. And I had I had no idea there was such a strong horror following in the Midwest. You know, for so long I, I was like, man, there's n- no one else likes these movies. And then you're right with the internet, it just kind of opened this up for me. And it was so nice to see there was other people like me, even in the Midwest, in my same state. It seems like most of us are from the Midwest. I mean. I would say 80% of the horror conventions are in like the Midwest area. I mean, it's, it, it kind of blows my mind when I see how many are just like in this, like in between like Ohio and Indianapolis and Minnesota and uh, Illinois and stuff like that. It's, it's ridiculous. Cause we seem to outnumber like the big, like, I mean, LA probably has a few, but it doesn't have near as many as us. So, I mean, that's just kind of wild. <laughs> yeah, what do you, what, I guess this question kind of can go to both of you guys. Um, what do you think it is about the Midwest that makes us love horror so much? Or what do you think it is um, that kind of brings out the, the fans from the Midwest as opposed to kind of other areas of the United States? Well, I mean, question. I feel like... I feel like um, when it comes to the Midwest, I mean, A, there's winter for nine months out of the year. So, 
Um, but other than that, I mean, we seem to have, I mean, we're more smaller, um, smaller towns and communities that would have like the one video store and stuff like that. So, I mean, going to rent the movie for the weekend was a big deal as opposed to like, you know, the, the big cities where it's like, oh, there's all these things to do. But when you grow up in a small town, it's basically we're either going to go to the movie theater, the drive-in, or the video store. <laughs> so it's one of it's one of those. So I mean, I feel like that kind of helps bring uh, the horror genre as strong as it is in the Midwest because there, there might not be as much to do here. <laughs> yeah, for Fine, sure. Right? So, yeah, uh, Dylan, I guess I'll ask, um, end with one last question. I mean, obviously, you just worked on a slasher with us, so I, I got to ask this question because I asked this to all of our guests, but um, what is your favorite slasher movie and why? Ooh, I wasn't ready for this, Kevin. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, I know. I <laughs> it's, so hard. it's so hard to pick just one because there's so many I like for different reasons. Let me think here. Yeah, I, that's how I feel whenever somebody's like, what's your favorite scary movie? And I'm just like, I have like a list of 50. Like, I can't just pick one because <laughs> it changes with each day. Like, I'll be like, right. oh, I love A Nightmare on Elm Street. And then the next day I'll be like, well, you know, I really think Chopping Mall is my favorite. And then it'll be like, well, you know, Fright Night's really, really good. Right. Okay. Well, well I think I have to say, you know, Friday the 13th and Halloween to me are always tie to me. I love them equally. I don't love one over the other. But I guess going in with the Christmas theme, and I feel bad I haven't mentioned it earlier, but if, I have to bring up, of course, Black Christmas, you know, the classic one. I just think that's it's such a brilliant... There's The movie is still effective today, you know, especially that, that eye scene. It's just so intensely oh. creepy. And I, I feel like every other slasher movie after Black Christmas has a lot to owe to that, to, you know, what they kind of set in motion, whether they realized it or not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've had that problem, though, with Black Christmas where I try to show it to people and they're like, oh, this is so slow. It's so boring. And I'm like, it's atmospheric. You have to be patient. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> I, I have shown it to some people, and they had that effect where the you know they start falling asleep, or you know every time anytime I try showing a '70s movie to some of my friends, you know it's an uphill battle. But there's you know every once in a while you meet someone who's into it, and it's it's refreshing and exciting. <laughs> well, I think too with Black Christmas, um, one thing that we try to kind of also accomplish with our movie is that it's one of the the few original horror movies that really kind of towed the line between the comedy and the horror aspects. Where, like, if you haven't watched Black Christmas in a long time, there's a lot of really scary stuff in it, but you'll be surprised by how much humor there is as well. Um, oh, for sure. Fun. Absolutely. I mean, Blatio. anything that comes out of Mrs. Mack's mouth is hysterical, <laughs> and then you've got Margot Kidder just tearing up the scenery as Barb. I mean, I she always is the highest template of like the drunken rich bitch character for me um and that that was one thing that i felt the the remake was severely lacking because they tried to make a barb character but oh it just it did not work (laughs) 
I think there's something brilliant about uh, the Christmas theme in general because you know at Christmas time there's always this pressure for everyone to be happy and everyone to get together. <laughs> so to put to twist it on its head, I think is always really fun and just in a in a well, dark, disturbing have... way. <laughs> And then you have the whole, like, oh, it's so warm and cozy. But the second you turn off all the Christmas lights, it's cold and it's dark and it's desolate and it's very, very creepy. So, I mean, it goes both ways. Yeah, completely agree. So that's going to be the end of our show. They're going to kick us off at any second now. So thank you very much for calling in, Dylan. I hope you had a good time um, and looking forward to working with you in the future. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me call in. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. Awesome. Well, hey, call in anytime you want because, um, yeah, we always love talking about horror. So um, anytime that you want to be a guest, um, you're more than welcome to. Rock in. Have a good night, guys. Oh, you too. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. See ya.